Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Kami Sharia. And I'm Monica Ainley. And you're listening to Fashion No Filter where we sit down with some of the lead creatives, strategic thinkers, and emerging talent around us to interpret the ins and outs of the fashion industry today. Hey, Monica Inley. Oh, wait, should I say Monica Inley de la Villardière? <laughs> I just noticed we haven't changed your name yet in the show intros. Do you want me to ask Andrew, our producer, to do that? Oh, hey, Camille Charrière. So it's funny, actually, when I made the decision to change my name, I forgot how many places I'd have to actually go and change it. Can we please take a step back and talk about that decision for two minutes? Mm. Because I feel like it's actually quite a nice metaphor for what we're going to be talking about in this episode, don't you think? Yeah. What, uh, you mean people trying to imply that I'm a flaky feminist for changing my name? Hey, you said it, not me. So let me just talk you through my reasoning. Uh, First of all, I love my in-laws. They're wonderful. And I think it's a nice way of showing my happiness to be entering into the family without abandoning my own family. Non plus. (laughs) But also, marriage is a tradition. We don't need marriage. It's a gesture. You know, if not, just get common-law married. So I don't really see changing your name as anything different. But also more globally, I find it kind of strange that issues like this are still considered feminist issues in 2018. It's kind of about equality and what your choice is, is your choice. I mean, to me, that's the whole point of feminism. You dress how you want to dress. You change your name if you want to change your name. Wear your hair long. Do whatever you want, you know? Exactly. I agree. Equality is all about choice, which does bring us to the point of this week's episode, feminism in fashion, or simply feminism, really, because it's not the kind of thing you can apply to just one individual part of your life. We all know the fashion industry is going through a tumultuous period at the moment, with photographers, agents, stylists, all being finally called out on what seems like years of abusive behaviour. So this episode seeks to navigate this controversial topic in order to understand whether we have made any real progress and get to the bottom of what being a feminist today really means. So coming up on the show, one of our favourite guests from season one is back. Former model and activist Sarah Ziff updates us on fashion's moment of reckoning of sexual abuse and how our industry fits into this greater time of change. Plus, fine jewellery designer Anissa Kermich talks us through her interpretation of the female form in her work and what the trend of female new depictions in fashion really means. And the journalist and author of Hot Feminist, Polly Vernon, gives us tips on how to be both. That's right. You can be both feminine and feminist, says she. 
So let's get right into it. While the discussion shouldn't be limited to fashion, it sure is topical. Actually, I wanted to read a quote from an article in The Guardian that our brilliant producer, Andrew, came across yesterday. The writer, Zoe Williams, observes that she has never asked what the fashion world says about feminism, and she refers to the fashion world as this nest of predominantly female creativity, but kind of says that it's besides the point. Plainly, she says, neither fashion nor feminism lives under a bell jar. If fashion doesn't speak plainly about its feminist agenda, that doesn't mean it says nothing. The same controversies that have arisen in the rest of the culture, Me Too recently, have exploded in fashion this week, seeing allegations of abusive photographers that were foreshadowed but by no means encompassed by the uncomfortable existence of Terry Richardson. But, Williams continues, your garden variety feminist has the same problem as fur protesters outside the shows. It's hard to ask a political question about something when you're never quite sure what you're looking at. It's impossible to ask a question about feminism along any normal lines. Basically, she says, titillation is acres away from the point on the runway. Fashion is not to do with sex, Justin Picardi, the editor of Harper's Bazaar, told her at the Molly Goddard show this week. Fashion does intersect with feminism in interesting ways. It's not just about intrusive photographers, but there's so little informed debate about it. The BBC doesn't even have a fashion correspondent. By the way, if there are any BBC producers listening, we'd like to put ourselves forward as potential candidates for the position. We know you loved our Woman's Hour takeover. We certainly love doing it. (laughs) And now... Time to hear from one of our favorite activists, Sara Ziff. Yes, you have heard Sara on Fashion No Filter before, but just to recap. An American former model, filmmaker, and labor activist, Sara is the founding director of the Model Alliance, a nonprofit advocacy group for models in the American fashion industry. Once the face of Tommy Hilfiger, Gap, and Stella McCartney, Ziff co-directed and produced a feature film, Picture Me, which was a groundbreaking chronicle of her and other models' experiences in the industry. Today, she is leading the charge against sexual harassment in the modelling industry. Given fashion is in the midst of its own Me Too movement, for Ziff, the current climate offers the possibility for change and to break down barriers and discuss issues models and assistants have been facing for decades. Earlier this month, the Council of Fashion Designers of America announced a collaboration with Model Alliance, solidifying landmark changes to change room privacy. A seemingly small but significant move towards a safer workplace. Anna Wintour, who needs no introduction here, even wrote a piece in her own magazine, American Vogue, in January after some of the industry's top photographers, two of whom were regular contributors to the publication, were accused of workplace sexual assault. In her open letter, she pledged landmark changes to the necessity of models being of age, banning photographers from shooting work not directly commissioned and approved, and the banning of alcohol on Condé Nast shoots. The 90s are far away. Sure. This new code of conduct can be traced indirectly, if not directly, back to the work of Sarah Ziff and the Model Alliance. Hi, Sarah. It's so nice to have you back. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's been a year. You've achieved a great deal in creating a safe workplace for models and speaking out against abuse since we spoke to you last. Can you talk us through some of your achievements in the last year? Well, so much has changed since October when the Weinstein news broke. And 
I have to say, it's as awful as the many allegations in our industry and other industries have been. Um, you know, that story really opened the floodgates, and it's so good that at last these stories are coming to light. And it certainly, I think, helps people appreciate the work that I'm doing and have tried to do for several years now. So in light of the Weinstein allegations introduced legislation called the Models Harassment Protection Act, Mm -hmm. and that is actually based on a couple of years of research. Um, We had planned to introduce the bill, and it was kind of coincidental that this uh, became the national discussion. And essentially, the, the bill would extend protection against sexual and other forms of harassment to models working in New York. We have also been meeting with various different industry stakeholders to talk about how agencies and media companies and brands can take steps to address these concerns. And we've seen, you know, Condé Nast introduce a code of conduct. And I think that, you know, there's more to come. So this is all playing out in real time, and <laughs> I'm hopeful that we'll, we'll see more developments uh, from the Model Alliance pretty soon. Great. And so you would say that the hashtag MeToo movement, as it's referred to these days, has directly helped your cause? Well, I, yes, I, in the sense that I think it, it's, there's a huge amount of pressure on companies to act Did you always feel like this moment of reckoning was inevitable or did did it kind of, I mean, you did use the word coincidence, I think, before. Did it catch you off guard? Were you surprised that it happened this year? I don't think anyone except perhaps the women involved in telling that New York Times story could have known that this was coming. And we've all (laughs) wanted to see these changes for such a long time. And I honestly think that this change to the media landscape is the most powerful thing that I think I've ever seen in, in my time as an advocate. So I, I feel like, you know, after over six years of trying to even just be able to have a conversation to acknowledge that these abuses exist... I'm actually now, you know, actively being solicited by, you know, powerful people in the industry mm-hmm. who <laughs> who are finally willing to take steps, meaningful steps to address these concerns. I think we can all agree that social media has been an overall creator of progress in this movement. But what are the dangers? Can you speak to that? Relying on a hashtag? Sure. Well, I think that speaking out through social media and traditional media is a powerful and cathartic first step, but it, it's also, it's, it's not enough. And the conversation has turned to how do we address concerns in an industry that has, you know, bred sexual predation and abuse for far too long. And I'm hoping that we can be part of leading that change towards really like meaningful, long lasting solutions. Yeah. Well, just taking a step back, so women arguably have more power in fashion than any other industry. So why has sexual harassment been allowed to happen under 
the noses of so many powerful women over the years. <laughs> I think in our industry, bad behavior is often normalized. Mm-hmm. And I think as Edie Campbell yeah. said so well in her open letter a few months ago, there's this cult of the artist genius and there are a lot of yes men and enablers around powerful people. And so certainly people have been, I think, complicit because I don't think any of of these allegations are news to most people. And so we all have a role to play here. This isn't just about a cleansing out and getting rid of some bad actors. We have to, I think, change the way that we do business. The elements of a program that that I have put forward include things like sexual harassment training of modeling agents and other people who are working with models and who might even be just bystanders to abuse. You know, you can't have a whisper network. If you know that something is happening, you should report it. Um, And you need to know how to report it. I don't think right now many people necessarily know what constitutes sexual harassment in the workplace or what kind of recourse they have. So that's all work that I'm doing now. And I also think that it's really important that when people report, you know, sexual harassment or assault, that they're not having to file that complaint with the same person who's hiring them. You know, it's not... It's not really surprising that someone would probably not want to file a complaint with someone who kind of controls their career or financial future. So these are the kinds of things that we're looking at now. You have argued for an independent monitor or a watchdog throughout the world of fashion. How do you see this working and is this actually close to happening, do you think? I certainly think it's needed and the response so far has been very positive. I think agencies are struggling with reputational risk and you know the better agencies are unfortunately being you know cast in a bad light alongside other actors who you know have have not been so great. So I do think that people need to have a a system and a structure in place where they will be held accountable and where People who cooperate with a program that guarantees, you know, dignity and respect yeah. and fair treatment are recognized and rewarded. So this is this is very much the work that I'm doing now. And but it's only going to work if the whole system works together. You need all sort of industry leaders, you know, agencies, yeah, globally. And media mm-hmm. companies, and brands. Absolutely. And it's a global initiative. Yes. And um, Sarah, how would you? respond to those who at times criticize what we're now calling the Me Too movement as veering close to a witch hunt, you know, not always, but at times. Are there any concessions to be made in terms of making sure that we are fair and reasonable in differentiating between cases? I do think that when anyone wages allegations against someone, they need to be responsible. And I tend to think that when people suffer sexual abuse, uh, we all know, you know, the the statistics show that uh, the vast majority of people do not come forward and do not report Mm -hmm. their experiences. So I tend to 
believe the people when they when they do yeah. Yeah. speak out. That said, you know, I, it, it's possible that there will be casualties and, you know, ch- change has never been any kind of major movement, which I think this is, has not happened without ruffling a few feathers and it, it hasn't been easy and this isn't going to be easy, but we need to push through it because I think there's light at the end of the tunnel. There is. There certainly is. Thank you so much, Sarah, for speaking to us again. It's great to hear from you. And I'm sure we'll have you back at some later date. That would be great. Thank you so much. (laughs) My goodness, she's cool. Such an inspiring lady. You know you've done something important when Anna Wintour sits up and listens. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. But seriously, Sarah has created a watchdog moral authority in an industry that's so desperately needed it. And she's slowly but surely changing the way the old guard thinks. Go, Sarah, and thank you. Okay, everybody, so how about a little bit of dressed for radio now? Hey, Cam, so do you feel like a feminist in a short skirt? Uh, yes. I mean, I don't know if I feel like a feminist every day, but being in a short skirt or not doesn't change that feeling whatsoever. Do you have a moral debate with yourself every time you show a bit of cleavage? Uh, no. It actually makes me feel more, not to use my least favorite word, but empowered rather than less. Is that weird? No, I don't think so. Not at all. And I think it's important that we abolish the notion that feminists don't shave their legs or wear deodorant and wash their hair. Yeah, and only wear hiking rucksacks and old ASICs and shout down innocent male passers-by in the street. Yeah, I'll judge everybody that isn't like them. Actually, as I'm French, I will say it, this is actually a pretty bad problem in France. Feminism somehow became a dirty word in the capital of style. And women don't often want to be associated with it. Yeah, I do find it's particularly a problem there. It's it's strange. Well, actually, this kind of reminds us of something that's been in the media yesterday. Jennifer oh, Lawrence. The Jennifer Lawrence dress yeah. debacle. So she was pictured in... Um, at a photo call for her next film in a beautiful, killer Versace number. Very revealing, very sexy. Um, and it was cold. It's February. And, yeah, and uh, she was taken down by the media, by onlookers, Twitter, etc. Just a lot of people commenting as to the fact that why didn't they give the poor lady a coat and all these unnecessary, I guess, comments suggesting that she had not made the decision herself or couldn't survive in a (coughs) revealing dress uh, for two minutes. And she came back with a pretty solid rebuttal, right? Yeah, she said, well, she said quite a few things, but I found this particularly meaningful. Everything you see me wear is my choice. And if I want to be cold, that is my choice too. Meaning essentially what we've been talking about. Yeah, I think people also need to not be patronizing. Certainly you should be allowed to wear a dress without it causing pages of pages of commentary on the internet about you not being a true feminist, etc. And to paraphrase, she essentially went on to say, there are bigger things to talk about here. The fact that I'm wearing a dress and these men are wearing coats is just so irrelevant yeah, and to it's the bigger got nothing conversation. nothing to do about feminism. Nothing. And again, we're, we're losing focus by discussing these issues as if they had anything to do with it. And it's embarrassing, frankly, at this point. This is not where the conversation should be headed. Precisely. Next up, one of my favourite columnists is joining us in the studio. Polly Vernon has been a features writer, interviewer and columnist for 18 years. 
She now writes primarily for Grazia and The Times, but also loves a good Twitter debate. <laughs> Polly, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for calling me one of your favourites. Well, you were. Remember, very exciting. I still think oh. one of my favourite things that's ever happened to me was finding myself referenced in your Grazia column. You give good column. What can I say? You give, <laughs> you give good subject matter. <laughs> You're very useful to me. I'm glad. So let's get down to it. Polly, we've been throwing around the term feminist in this episode already mm -hmm. without necessarily knowing its exact meaning. Mm. So what is your definition of feminist? Ah, God, oh, that's quite a question. Mm. I mean, I think at this precise point in time, it's really complicated and right. really hard. My feeling about what it means to be a feminist have changed over recent times. And originally, I just kind of thought it was about equality between the genders and a structural equality and a legal equality and equality of rights. But increasingly, I don't really know what it means anymore. And it seems to mean a great deal of different things to different people. And some of the things it seems to mean uh, don't sit very comfortably with me. So I think we're at quite a complicated point. My other feeling about it was always it sort of meant what it means to the individual. But again, I think that's being being debated. It's funny you say that it doesn't sit with you very well because we've noticed that a lot of people distance themselves from that label. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I think, well, I certainly have questioned whether I can call myself a feminist anymore lately. I think it has come to mean something different lately. And I think it's come to mean something complicated and something confusing and something quite compromised and I'm not surprised that people feel they are distancing themselves from it. I mean do you do you too how do you feel about it? Well we've actually just been discussing it. Okay. Uh, I think that I personally do mm -hmm. self-identify as a feminist insofar that I believe true feminism is totally different from what older generations defined it as. Mm -hmm. So I choose to be feminine and feminist, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that is my choice. Yeah. And in that I have that choice, that is the very nature of feminism. Yeah. But I know that a lot of people don't see it that way. Yeah. Agreed, yeah. Uh, so it's a, it is, it's a funny one, actually. And we're definitely in a moment where all of this is being redefined. We are, yeah. And overcomplicated in the redefinition. I'm very much with you. I mean, I'm sort of, my feeling about feminism, my personal feminism, has always been that it can coexist with the desire to be perceived as sexy. Right. And um, that's, you know, possibly related to what you think and feel. And I think that is can be a harder sell. And I wrote a book called Hot Feminist, which was precisely about whether those two things can ever coexist. And my feeling is, yeah. But I was heavily contested on that point. Yeah, we were actually going to ask you about that. Yeah. But you were uh, trolled, apparently, on oh, social media. Yeah, I was uh, destroyed on uh, social media. So right, right now we're having this moment of reckoning about how, you know, men and women treat each other. Mm. But is this also, do we need to look at how women are treating other women? 100%. I mean, my experience of engaging in the feminist debate and portraying my version of feminism was that men were entirely cool with it. Women, on the other hand, ripped me to shreds yeah. and largely women who were identified as feminists <sighs> tore me piece to piece. I've never seen anything like that, Dreamer. What are like one or two examples of what they took most issue with? Uh, it was quite confusing. I mean, I, I was subject to, so I wrote this book, this book was published in 2015. 
I called the book Hot Feminist, which is obviously a fairly contentious title, and I started thinking about it. Oh, years and years ago, I was um, a star writer and editor for The Observer newspaper, a very sort of traditionally left-wing, very feminist-identifying paper. And I always found that there I occupied quite a complicated space because I personally had seen no distinction between, I mean, no compromise in caring about what you look like and caring about fashion and caring about style and makeup and being smart and engaged and clever about the world. But within that environment, as far as um, some of our readers were concerned, there was a conflict. Um, So I definitely started thinking about it there. I wrote a piece in about 2003 about my body, uh, about being slim and enjoying that and liking that and liking my body. And that caused kind of extraordinary explosion. My, that was my first exam, uh, experience oh, really? of the internet turning against it, yeah. But because you liked your own body. Because she uh-huh. admitted to liking being thin. I admitted yeah. to liking being thin. And it was this was in a time when um, thin politics, skinny politics were at the, sort of at the very early stages of body politics were incredibly early stages of being discussed and being an issue. And the article was very jokey, very lighthearted, mm. and in no way attacking anyone else for anything else. But it also was published at a time when the internet was becoming, when internet comment was becoming a bigger deal. And uh, it was probably a sort of early example of clickbaity um, explosion of comment. So that and that made me think, you know, is it okay for you to like your body if you're bigger? Is that is that the deal? Um, so it, the sort of seeds of thought were planted, and then as I think we define it as fourth wave feminism happened, and that is very much an expression of feminism that depends on social media and depends on the internet. And I was interested about how that was exploding, and I felt that anything that's defined by social media tends to be also defined by judgmentalism mm. and. I was concerned that the, there was a crossover and that this variant on feminism was incredibly judgmental and quite exclusive. So I was thinking about all these things and I kind of came up with a title and I thought it would just be an interesting kind of experiment to work out if mm. I could really definitively come up with a, a way to make feminism and a desire to be sexy coexist and it's also it's just a memoir you know it's about me growing up in small town Devon and just wanting Mm. London and lipstick so yeah so that was the book and in in the book you talk a lot about the fear of getting it wrong I do you know this idea of being not quite feminist Feminist enough enough. or or not feminist in the right way yeah exactly and then I think that's what I wanted to talk about more because even in writing this show there were so many things like oh can we say this can we not are they going to understand it's a joke are they not Yeah. and I mean it's so true especially when you're a girl working in fashion it was like well I mean what have you got to say about it you know absolutely and and that you know the fear of getting it wrong which I call fogwi which it's completely unpronounceable (laughs) 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 fogwi F-O-G-I-W it sounds like a creature creature in Lord of the Rings, yeah, so okay, should illustrate it for me. But that, when I first started thinking about that idea, which was 2014 was when I was writing that book, uh, it was definitely happening. But now, I mean, I think every time we speak and yeah. write and tweet, yeah. the absolute fear that we, it will explode, that we will some, we'll use the wrong word, we'll have the wrong hot take on the wrong thing, and the rest of the internet will turn against us, is overwhelming, extraordinary. And, and I suppose it's good that we are thinking about 
the consequences of our actions and our speech, but at the same time, I think it's very uncreative and it's very limiting. I recently posted a picture of myself at the beach with using the emoji of the little blonde girl, but with the dark skin. I and saw I got this. a comment, someone saying, how dare you use blackface? And I... It, I mean, she's blonde with, with a tan. And I said, are you joking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it, I, I saw that. I, I mean, people are literally picking the worst things. I mean, in what way is that any? Is that going to help the narrative in any way to have that fight on social media? It, it, it isn't. And people do seem primed for offence and primed to yes. attack. Yeah. Just sort of like, who's going to get the next thing wrong? Who's going to get it wrong? Who can we judge before they judge us? And I think that's crap. Counterproductive. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Incre- yeah, or, or indeed counterproductive. Another C word that is more eloquent. So yeah, so I, 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 I sort of I played with all the, these ideas, and inevitably there was this eruption. Of people going, "How dare you say feminism is judgmental? How dare you say that we do this Twitter pile-on thing?" And you know, oh, the irony. So that was that was a lot of it, I think. So what is a hot feminist? So the book was. It was about me being a uh, incredibly politically incorrect, incredibly flawed by the sort of standard definition of feminist. It was about somebody who kind of adores men, adores flirting, doesn't mind if I get checked out on the street, is pissed off mainly if I get checked out on the street and it turns out it wasn't me. Um, <laughs> or is, you know, if I get checked out on the street and I don't like it, it's entirely incapable of shouting back. So it was all those things that are virtually heresy now you know really mm. are almost it's mm. heresy to say oh if some guy looks at me I'm okay I don't feel like it's a microaggression I don't agree with the term microaggression so it was that but mainly at the heart of it the early intro to this I, I say nobody can tell you how to be a feminist there is no right and wrong way this is my way for God's sake don't you do it like this that's not the point find your own way because I did feel that feminism was becoming incredibly restrictive mm. well I agree and I have to say 
I was in awe recently of one of your pieces that I read about the Me Too and Time's Up campaigns because you managed to word something that I'd been trying to figure out how oh, to word good. What for did I say? a really long time. <laughs> good, go me. Well, you were speaking exactly about what you just mentioned, but in a different context. Yeah. About how about being afraid to say exactly yeah. what you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and being afraid to say does a microaggression really fit into the same category as all of these major yeah, aggressions yeah. that have been coming out. Yeah. And I know that this all has to be qualified and all has to be taken into account in different contexts. But is somebody hitting on you really worth the kind of uproar that it's getting? Well, you know? I'm going to say no. And I, I mean, I think I... That some people, I believe, some women genuinely feel this and they are entitled to feel this. I genuinely do not and I am genuinely entitled to say mm. I don't. No, you certainly are. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the, the piece you're referring to is a column I wrote in Grazia about how since even since I wrote the book, things have escalated to a point that I'm t- almost, I've never been more terrified to say certain things than I am now because of those reactions. And that the conversations that we should be having a much more nuanced and grey and delicate than Twitter allows for and social media allows for. So, you know, you are either a victim of male aggression or you are a male aggressor. Or you're Catherine Deneuve. Who yeah, is, exactly. Yeah. Not that I'm not saying, guys, I'm not saying she did the right thing. I am not taking sides on that. But good God, I mean, she, she was taken every, down. She was taken down. She had every right to say it. She has the right Um, to say it. She does have the right to say it. And I'm really uncomfortable with the portrayal of women as perpetual victims because that is not how I feel. And I'm really, really uncomfortable of the portrayal as all men, as predatory and as sex, as something that is done to women. All our sexual agency seems to have been taken away from us. We're not allowed. But isn't the point also that hashtag Me Too was supposed to be reference talking about harassment, sexual harassment, abusive behavior in the workplace. And this got, because of social media and people jumping on the bandwagon and wanting to take part in a a huge social movement, as people do, got turned into the forum, the space where everybody started talking about any any type of sexual yeah. harassment they've ever experienced in their life, which is not the same thing. No. It's not the same thing having to deal with sexual harassment in the workplace with your superior, somewhere where you're trying to further your career, etc., someone where you're seeing the same people every day, etc., or in the street where the fine line between flirting and not flirting, you're making that decision. Yeah. Because if someone, if you decide to flirt back, then it's no longer... Harassment is it? It's flirting, right? No, I, I absolutely agree. And I do think Me Too and Time's Up are at the most powerful if we direct them consciously so that laws are changed, so yeah. that palpable things change, structures exactly. change, and women have an easier time at work. And muddying those waters, that that, that doesn't help. And that is a, another problem, another issue, I would say, with this format of feminism, that it has become, it becomes sort of this amorphous outcry that isn't focused and isn't directed. And then is ultimately pretty disempowering. And that's a rotten shame. So where are we going to go from here then? How do we make that happen? Well, I mean, I th- what I have taken from all of this, what I've taken from what happened to me after the book, is that the best and most powerful thing I feel I can do personally is to focus my efforts very, very sharply 
onto one thing, onto one area, onto one thing that I think I can impact and change and help. And for me, that's been abortion rights in the Republic of Ireland. Mm. So they, women, if you become pregnant and you do not want to be pregnant in uh, the Republic of Ireland, also Northern Ireland, the Isle of Man, these are places in the EU and the UK where if a woman is pregnant and doesn't want to be, she can't get any access to abortion services. She has to get on a plane and come to places where she can. And that seems preposterous and ridiculously unfair and it isn't spoken about and it has been ignored. Um, and I, I think without abortion rights as women, we what are we? You know, the, the, yeah. everything, else, <laughs> everything else is reliant on the fact that if you get pregnant and you do not want to be, you can stop that. The gender pay gap, none of it, sexual harassment in the workplace, none of it really means that much if ultimately we can be forced to have children we do not want to have. And what about the young woman who can't afford to go to... Precisely, you know, the, the, the situation in Ireland, quite apart from the fact how desperately stigmatising it is for women who can afford to leave, for those who can't, is extraordinary. Mm. Um, and so I've helped um, as much as I can with the, the movement there to get abortion rights, which is called Repeal the Eighth, um, which has been actually a brilliant fashion crossover because the woman who really drove it is a woman called Anna Cosgrave. And she realised there were no visuals for the discussion around abortion that didn't include a picture of an unborn embryo. And she was like, well, that's useless. Um, (laughs) So she created a sweatshirt, a black sweatshirt with white type across it that just said repeal for reference to the Eighth Amendment, which stops women seeking abortion services and that meant that suddenly everybody started wearing these sweatshirts and that meant they were were great from a fashion perspective they were brilliant and from a graphic perspective they were brilliant and it meant that there was another visual that could be used by newspapers when they were reporting it which is so important such a a brilliant crossover of fashion because they have really cool as well such an amazing crossover of fashion and politics but we've got that point movement has got to the point where in may there will be a referendum in ireland about whether about change of the law and that's incredible that is a focused concentrated effort that has had real effects and that will impact the lives of women if the referendum goes the right way which fingers crossed it will will seriously impact the lives of women so that for me is that's that's what you do you you work out your goals you work out exactly what you're asking for exactly what can be done and then you do it wow that's super inspiring yeah great yeah. note to end on yeah thank Holly, you so thank much thank you so much thank you such a joy this week on social media break we decided to take a step back from our phones and discuss the real impact of social media and hashtag activism AKA if you like something or contribute to the general narrative by uploading a photo or updating your status accompanied by the right hashtag. Will it make a difference? Does it mean that you really care? The sheer volume of women sharing their sexual harassment stories is a real indication of the magnitude of the problem. And safe to say, there is probably not a woman in the world who hasn't experienced harassment in the workplace in some shape or form. There is strength in numbers, and social media has definitely allowed for some of these stories to finally reach a receptive audience. I mean, there's no doubt in our minds that social media has proven itself to be a really good platform to allow women and men to stand together in what can only be described as a human loudspeaker, as all these voices have been brought together and heard for the first time in a very long time, well, ever. Uh, But let's remember that... As with everything online, things can get a bit out of hand, especially when taken out of context. Yeah, you're right. And the issue being here that as soon as you take something out of context, you also inadvertently shift its meaning. 
Let me use the example of another powerful hashtag that's been used a lot recently. Black Lives Matter. It started off as an articulate and measured approach to a severe problem, aka violence and systematic racism against black people, but then created a great deal of friction and negativity online. And so if we go back to hashtag me too, I actually would like us to just think about the origins of the hashtag and the movement. So it was actually um, back in 2006 that the social activist Tarana Burke coined Me Too, uh, thinking back on a story of a 13-year-old girl who had confided in her that she had been sexually abused, and Tarana said that she wished she had said Me Too right there in the moment. Alyssa Milano, then this past October, tweeted, if all the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. And after that, that was it. I mean, the next day there were 60 million, I mean, literally, non-stop, hundreds of thousands of hashtag Me Too stories. Women sharing stories about sexual harassment in the workplace. Right. And, and and so the hashtag did soon become the online forum where people were sharing all of their stories relating to what they deemed actions or words of a sexually inappropriate nature in any way, shape or form. So not to say that harassment in general isn't a huge problem and not to say that it shouldn't be talked about with a loud voice, but talking about harassment in the workplace versus outdated attitudes and actions towards gender equality in other areas of life isn't necessarily the same thing. And I I mean... Yeah, this is where we have to be careful where maybe the hashtag went a little bit too far. I mean, encouraging people to name and shame the men, and in some cases the women, that behaved badly um, without due process Mm. does somehow resonate quite badly with me as it is akin to mob justice. In France, I remember, um, hashtag MeToo was taken a step further with... um, Hashtag balance ton porc, which literally means call out your pig, where women were told to share on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram the names of men that had emotionally, physically abused them. To me, this is quite shocking, as you suddenly had hundreds of men updating their own statuses, trying to justify, apologise or refute pretty serious allegations made against them. And the idea of calling out your neighbour or accusing your neighbour is... There's something very frightening about that, uh, and there's a sort of moral relativism to it. Uh, like the Aziz Asanri story, where a journalist wrote about a bad date with the actor Asanri and on an online platform. And I guess she was within her rights, we believe, in freedom of speech. But many felt her story was a little misplaced alongside much more severe accusations, as this just kind of resonated like a bad date. I don't know what you think, Kem. Yeah, I think we need to be so careful to not let this become a witch hunt. And we've touched on this with um, Sarah, and and we're going to talk about it later a little bit more as well. But this is not about women versus men. It's so important to shift the focus from the perpetrator to the policymakers, as it's the only way to see real change happen. And that's, after all, what we all want, right? Change. I think it's just as important to remember that online activism, although it is always a good place to start, it also needs to be backed up by serious change in the way that we operate. Amen. I think it's so important to keep up the momentum. Let us be vanguards of change in the workplace. Hear, hear.
Up next, we have risk takers. We spoke to one of fashion's most beloved and at times provocative fine jewelry designers, Anissa Kermiche. So we're here in the central London showroom of friend of the pod and, as the Daily Mail once called her, erotic jewelry designer, Anissa Kermiche. Hi, Anissa. Please, can you introduce yourself and give us a brief overview of what you do? Okay, so I was born 32 years ago, um, a <laughs> long time ago, uh, in France, uh, born and raised there in Paris. From a mixed background, my mom um, comes from Algeria, my dad is half-half, uh, he was born in France, she was born in Algeria. They met in France where they got married without knowing each other. Hello, <laughs> would you marry me? Yes. <laughs> I moved to London um, five years ago after a career in engineering. I worked four years as an engineer for a big consulting firm in Paris, which uh, ended up making me quite unhappy. And jewelry is something that I always had in me, but I never dared really doing because of all the stigma that there is around jewelry and also fashion in general. Mm. It's uh, something I always loved, but I felt a lot of, um, of hostility towards this topic when I was younger. And still nowadays, I studied in an engineering school with a lot of brilliant people who are really respected and admired uh, for their brain capacities, obviously. But I, f I always felt like not so much respect and admiration was there for, for creatives and the way we call it in France, soft science against hard science. So yes, I moved to London to just liberate myself from background, from demanding parents, from just a demanding society, I felt. And I always thought that London would be a, a much more welcoming ground for creativity. So I studied at Central St. Martins and then I studied um, 3D computer-aided design. So I tried to keep that technical side from uh, my engineering studies in a creative industry like jewelry, which allowed me to 3D print my, uh, my own um, jewelry and, uh, and make my uh, uh, samples from that. Uh, I started my company straight after I graduated and it took off very quickly. And um, I think there are many reasons why I think it took off very quickly. Reason number one, I think, because I was friends with Camille and <laughs> she was wearing my, <laughs> she was wearing a pair of earrings called the Panier Doré, which immediately were immediately spotted by her followers, which not only are many but also decision makers but like, those panier dore earrings are also exquisitely made and beautiful they are but if no one had seen them uh, right. they would still exactly. be in a cupboard somewhere it was a collaborative effort <laughs> i remember we, we can ask you to reference back to the, the business of instagram which was our first episode <laughs> yeah i'd like to hear more about this exactly the other reason i would say is because i have these provocative pieces it's a line called body language which features a naked body parts like for example the rubies boobies which has rubies set in the nipples, uh, precious pubis, which is an onyx uh, set in the pubis, uh, have a French cancan, which are open legs featuring another pubis, pubes, 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 but all done really beautifully and artistic. Thank you. I, I try to make them look quite sculptural and nice and 
girly. So yes, the press loved the, the topic immediately and I was assaulted with a lot of questions about feminism <laughs> from one day to another without, without having really thought about the topic my whole life. So it was quite interesting. Now, it's interesting because more than ever, we're kind of finding the female body in various depictions all over art and fashion at the moment. Do you think that this trend reflects uh, something to do with the current feminist reckoning and the current climate that we're seeing, you know, in the media? Or uh, is it just a trend? There has always been woman body shapes in design and in fashion and in art. So when you think about, for example, the, the lip Uh, the lips jewelry from Salvador Dali from back then and I think definitely I think art and fashion are more and more associated I think maybe fashion is trying to find a reason to exist and it kind of gives it some credibility by being artsy and I think there's definitely also a trend I won't say I was one of the first ones to design body shapes but I don't remember seeing seeing it very much around when I first sketched well I'll say that you were <laughs> thank you Monica but I'm a friend of the pot <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but it's true that, and actually, all my friends are sending me these screenshots of these brands like designing bodies, 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 and I'm not. I'm tired of it, but I can't wait for the the next chapter because it seems like yeah, there's a big wave of of it in fashion, and I also think there's a marketing reason to it that anything, and I've seen it, and I think it also explains why my brand took off so quickly. Anything feminine or feminist is highly supported by press because it seems like it has become a trendy topic. It's very true. I remember when there was the Chanel show and um, Carl made the, the the models walk down the catalog, you know, holding those banners about feminists. There was a bit of a backlash, people saying you can't make feminism a trend. It should always be around. And I think that's maybe what we're seeing a little bit of right now. For sure. And it's funny to see some companies actually use it. Like uh, when you see the commercials from Dove, Uh, all these women, curvy and colorful women who should accept themselves the way they are. Mm. And uh, we forget that um, Dove is owned by the same company that owes Axe, which also makes these commercials, but that <laughs> considers women objects. And you see a group of women running after a boy who wears this deodorant. And yes, you see that the same company uses different ways of selling a product. And feminism, in that case, is used for marketing purpose. <laughs> well, I want to ask you where you draw the line between what is purely sexual and therefore the pure objectification of women in art. But I know it's not a question we should really ask because it's so complicated, the, the, the line between art and fashion. Well, the line between art and fashion, I think fashion is art. And sometimes I think art is not art. I'm much more moved by a beautiful sculptural heel on a shoe than a monochrome, for example. It's a tricky debate. It's all about, I think it's all about the, celui qui perçoit, the, it's all about the, 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 the receptor. receptor. It's all about the receptor, mm -hmm. I feel. And it's in the eyes of the beholder. Yeah, exactly. Have your creative work and cultural background ever come into conflict for you? <sighs> I know that my jewelry makes my mom very sad. <laughs> yes, uh, my, my, I had a very strict strict upbringing. My mom used to tell me, uh, your husband is your degree, not your actual future husband. Like, your husband won't be a boy, but your degrees. And I think, in a way, it sounds backwards, but actually quite feminist at the same time to just val like value studying and reading and 
seeing that as a liberation. But in the meantime, boys was a forbidden topic. It was taboo, like makeup, looking girly, like all these things were a bit taboo back then. So yes, um, it was a very strict upbringing. But in a way today, I'm, I'm thankful because I wouldn't have studied so hard. And I think a lot of the skills I use in my company today, I, I learned them more in engineering school than in art school, for example. And yes, I think my mom is quite funny. Like she says, why on earth do I have, like, why are you the only jewelry designer in the world who designs? Couldn't you, you couldn't have found another topic than naked bodies. Why? <laughs> Please explain why. And I'm going to tell her, listen to the podcast. <laughs> 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 yeah, she's not very happy about that, but she's proud, so that's what matters. She, as she should be. Exactly. <laughs> so how can the Muslim woman's traditional role in the family and the community and the modern European woman's approach to living, fashion and sexual liberation be reconciled? Or can they be? Can you be both? I think the question is quite polarized. It's not that it's not black or white. And if we say can it be reconciled? Does it mean that they are not reconciled at the moment? I feel, and it has been proven in a lot of societies, for example, in Iran before the 70s, or I remember my mom describes Algeria before the civil war as a really modern country. I, I, I've seen pictures of my mom in mini skirt and tons of makeup when she was 15. And I think it's a broader topic than that. It, I don't think it has to do very much with religion itself, but with politics. Yes, I think religion in general is not very compatible with modernism because it listens to a, do a dogma or dogma. And it's not really about Islam, I would say, but more religion in, in general. Yeah, it's not like when you think about religion in general, it's not about rational thinking and modernity is about rational thinking. So it clashes in that sense more than Islam would clash with modernity, I would say. But one thing we can't deny, because I grew up in a very, like I had Christian friends and Jewish friends, and I was the, the Arabic one. I was the, the Muslim girl in a Catholic school. And I remember that, that there's something you can't deny about Islam is that for sure women's rights are not really promoted. And uh, I remember going to a Quran school and learning a bit of it. And my memories are not, like, the translations were not really in favor of women's rights. So this is something we, we can't deny. But in the meantime, we see that uh, Muslim societies that really promote women's rights. And we, we also see, uh, for example, now, like, I won't talk about Saudi Arabia as a model at all. But, for example, we see a slight evolution uh, nowadays in Saudi Arabia. Uh, women are allowed to drive, etc. So... I think if we can look at the bright side, <laughs> <laughs> crazy times. Well, no, but it is, it is a step in the right direction. So Nisa, what does feminism mean to you today? And do you consider yourself a feminist? I've been asked this question a lot about the, like, does, is your brand a feminist brand? I always answer my brand is a feminine brand. And it's just a few letters different. But the thing is, Whenever nowadays you try to talk about a cause, you'll have to commit to it fully. And there are still a lot of sides of me that are not totally feminists. I don't want to have to pay the bill on the first date. Maybe not on the second one. <laughs> no, on the third one either. I like when the, my boyfriend holds the doors, but I'm joking. Feminism is not about that. I think to me, the definition of feminism 
We talk a lot about how men treat women, but we forget how women treat other women. So I think it's a lot, it has to, a lot to do about solidarity first. And we do a lot, like, without thinking about it, like body shaming, she's too skinny, she doesn't eat. Oh, she's too curvy, she shouldn't show herself this way. Oh, like, she, she's not smart enough, she's not this, she's not that. And I think in the first place, it's about also being respectful of other people's choices, other women's choices. And there's a piece of jewelry I designed called Belly Language. So it shows a, a pregnant uh, woman naked. And I have the feeling nowadays that women are much more concerned about equating men in terms of careers, in terms of politics, uh, uh, financially, etc. And when it comes to talking about kids, about motherhood, I feel it's not as valued as being successful. I have friends who made the choice to become mothers at 23, 24, whatever. And I always feel like it's much easier to look down on them than looking down on someone who is super successful. So I feel feminism is also also about catching up with femininity again and respecting other people's decisions. It's perfect because that's what we've been trying to touch upon in this whole episode, that it's about yeah. equal rights and freedom of choice rather than mm-hmm. every little detail in our lives. Thank you so much, Anissa, for having us and for your very insightful answers. And we can't wait to see your next collection. Thank you, ladies. Thank you so much for having us over, Anissa. Your flat is beautiful, as is your jewellery. Well, that's all for today, folks. As our producer, Andrew, just said, this show has been as meaty as a barbecue. (laughs) So we're just going to leave you to digest, I guess. As always, thank you to our glorious guests, Anissa Kermiche, Polly Vernon and Sarah Zev. Thank you so much and see you next time. Bye. My Instagram is at Monica Inley. And my Instagram is at Kemi Sharia. Fashion No Filters is a Sam Fry Limited production. One of my favorite columnists is Columnist. Again, column, column, quoi? Like a column in the mist. Okay. 